Hello and welcome back to episode 39 of Double Reel, the podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's get back into it. Last week, we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films, including Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and, deep breath for this long title, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, my look at David Cronenberg's A Dangerous Method, and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features. We start with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's the South Korean psychological horror film, A Tale of Two Sisters. Our hidden gem looks at a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month features Peter Jackson's forgotten 90s horror comedy, The Frighteners. Then it's the one that got away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we look at American director Joe Carnahan's attempt to adapt James Elroy's dark thriller novel, White Jazz. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the 2005 version of The Fog. Next week it's the big conversation where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. On our classic A Tale of Two Sisters, Ray says it was a bit derivative but I enjoyed it. The twist ending wasn't the best ever but it didn't ruin the film for me either. Uh, on our one that got away about white jazz, Dennis says, In the right hands, white jazz and all the other Elroy crime novels would make great films, although perhaps the best thing would be a TV series. Nathan says, I'd much rather watch a TV series based on Elroy's Underworld trilogy. Uh, quite a lot of strong reactions on our hidden gem feature, The Frighteners. Michael says, Bollocks. It's not a lost film or hardly heard of. It was very well publicised when it came out. It is a brilliant film, though. Uh, Matt agrees, it's not an obscure film. It was heavily marketed at the time. I saw it and didn't care for it, but I may have to watch it again since it's getting so much love these days. Other than that, Gaz, Julie, John, Erin and Chris all said they loved it. Uh, and on our remake, Hey, Watch the Fog, Paul, another one, says, I was genuinely surprised by how bad this was. At least the other 21st century remakes had some gore and jump scares. This was about as scary as an episode of Goosebumps. Ouch. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love to Southern Gothic drama Eve's Bayou. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials. This month we look at a very well-reviewed South Korean psychological horror film from the early 2000s. The classics and recommended feature for episode 39 is A Tale of Two Sisters. So James, uh, I hadn't seen this before uh, we decided to do it for the pod, had you? Nope. Yeah, so this this came uh, on like a list of Asian cinema films. A, a listener kind of stuck it up and said, "Look, it was almost like it looked like a little card, but it was just a graphic online that said a bunch of mainly Korean and Japanese and some Chinese films. Say these are all good, give them a watch." So I added it to the list and just kind of plucked it for this uh, for this episode. Um, 
what would you what sort of genre of film do, I mean I've said psychological horror but as this film started going what what did you think you were watching mate um I would tend to agree with that classification I suppose um psychological definitely and horror yes yes a horror um but I would think I would call it, I would say it was a bit more mysterious than just a horror. Yeah, and I think it was quite dramatic and thrilling as opposed to a horror. It's obviously got scary and creepy moments. Yeah, I mean it starts with a woman in an institution. Uh, her face is sort of covered by her hair, um, and uh, the psychiatrist is asking her, you know, who 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 does she think she is? You know, what's going on? Does she remember what happened? And then the rest of the film is basically, a, or most of the rest of the film is basically a flashback. And then it's to two kind of sisters, I guess teenagers, I would have said, sort of young teenagers arriving at, at a house, sort of hints over sort of the first sort of part of the film that she's been away. And they say things like not well. And it's kind of intimate. If, if you read the summary, they're like the synopsis, or, you know, the, the brief summary of the premise of the film on IMDb, it says basically one of those girls has been away for, for mental health issues. Now they're back at the house uh, where they live with their dad and their stepmom. And you start to kind of, there's weird, horrible stuff going on in the house. They don't get on with the stepmom. The dad's sort of very weak, just withdraws to his room. Um, it, you know, their mum died. You, you don't know how at the start. And they sort of, there's a confrontation between the characters, but there's also sort of weird stuff happening in the house, right? Yeah, it's, they kind of hint early on that there's something not quite right with this house. Mm -hmm. It's um, just with the certain shot that I kind of re remember that sort of established it was the shot behind the shoulders yeah. of the two young women, and it's just the, the the house in the like the background, and you think, hmm, what what what's going on here? And that's just a very simple shot, isn't it? It's nothing. It's nothing blatant to say this house has got something wrong with it but i feel like that shot of them looking at the house just kind of thinks why are they looking at this house so intently yeah and i think it it keeps its cards close to its chest for a fair bit of the film because you're sort of going is this supernatural or is one of the characters losing it but if one of the characters is losing it which one of them is losing it do you know what i mean i mean obviously it's a you assume it's a female character right um, but there's three of those, so which one of you know? It's like at the end that that flashback. Does that mean only one of them survives? Whatever's you're, whatever you're about to watch, is it that one of them kind of has lost it, and then you'll find out what what you know whether they're imagining something or, or who knows? Um, but I think while it's while that's unfolding, it's kind of all about the atmosphere. It's it's quite creepy. It kind of it sort of it keeps two plates spinning, and what's this? And the conflict between the sisters and the stepmother, but also sort of uh, i guess either the either the house is haunted or either either the people in the house are are haunted more figuratively speaking i mean what 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 did you think was going on as it progressed without um, spoiling anything it's hard to say without spoiling if you know mm -hmm. what i mean but yeah. let, let let me ask you a question another way uh it it, it I mean, I thought the film had some good performances by the characters, and I think there were some good scares. There's a bit where a, a sort of a, it's very, it's rather too similar, if you ask me, a little bit to the the woman from the Ring, but a a a, a female character or female creature is sort of like bearing down on 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 one of the girls, and 
Is she having a nightmare? Is it really happening? It's really quite freaky. So that the, the atmosphere and some and some scares are good. The performances are good. You definitely sort of get this feeling of it's it's unsettling, right? But I also felt while I was watching it like something's brewing up, right? There's there's some sort of revelation that we're going to get here. And did did you sort of while you were watching that, did you sort of hazard a guess to yourself what it was going to be, and and if so, how close to it were you? Yeah, I think the the main point, or not the point, like the message of the story, but the story follows this woman who is being haunted and f- uh, followed by her her mother's ghost, mm. and it's very she's been institutionalized and she's still having these visions and you know these hauntings and she's she's not getting anywhere like her her father doesn't um doesn't believe her yes yeah. um and she's got the step the stepmother um who's um you know got quite a bad relationship with the daughters yeah um as it is and then obviously this isn't helping but she's um they don't believe her so they they try and reinstitutionalize her and i think i found it quite interesting how you're without spoiling it you're almost on the side of the ghost in a sense mm. that's what that's what i got because of how the protagonists were being treated um yeah i, I can't really go into more than that mm. without spoiling it if you know what i mean yeah i mean i mean look, i'll i'll lay it out i thought that i thought the film was very well acted and i thought the atmosphere was very good and i thought it the the people you know the the people behind the camera demonstrated a lot of skill with the film you know with the you know the the cinematography was good the music the atmosphere the style was good i i have a few criticisms i think there are a couple of things which just don't make sense and i know when you're talking about things that may be supernatural may not be i don't mean doesn't make sense by going oh well i don't believe in ghosts so this this film doesn't make sense right i just thought there's stuff like the dinner party if you look back to what happens at the dinner party and you go Okay, well, that once you actually know, once you actually get the revelations at the end, you think back to what happened at the, the dinner party scene in the middle of it, and go, "Well, well, none of that fucking stacks up now." Do you know what I mean? And I, I think if I have a criticism, I think it, it, it had this framing device about saying, "Oh, so you're going to find something out here that kind of tells you what's really going." And I think they trip themselves up trying to be a bit too clever. They try to have it like almost both ways or even three ways with the revelations at the end and i just thought uh if i'm honest without spoiling the plot if if the twist had been like any one of those three things right i think the film would have worked better do you know what i mean it would have gone okay i get it now but i felt in the end they sort of they tried to kind of i don't know if there was just trying to be a bit too tricksy i mean with again i don't want to spoil the plot but this film came out not long after six cents and ring and i think the people who wrote the script were a little bit influenced by that maybe there's an element of, well that that's what works at the moment so we need to do a film like that but i i felt a little bit like they tried a little bit too hard to be clever so that when they pulled the curtain back at the end and revealed what was really going on i was i sort of went uh that's a bit i think they tried a bit too hard there i don't know how you felt about about the way the film sort of the because it really in the end it, it sort of hinges on the revelations uh how did how did they make you feel when you saw them it felt a bit cliched. That's what I'd say. It felt a bit like we'd seen this kind of thing before, mm-hmm. um, and it didn't feel like anything new. Mm. No, it's definitely a, a little bit derivative. Yeah, yeah. That that would be my main criticism of it. I'm not a big horror guy as it is. Yeah, but um, 
I think, look, look I think the, the, the revelation in this film is not the same as The Sixth Sense, yeah? I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I think they're obviously influenced by that kind of, uh, narratively speaking, there's a point where you go, oh, fuck, this is actually what's been going on, right? Um, and I just feel like while M. Night Shyamalan sort of hasn't been able to maintain his early success in terms of quality, in my humble opinion, the sixth sense works. Because when you get to the end, you go, oh, yeah, do you know what I mean? That's that's why his wife doesn't talk to him at the dinner table. That's why he seems disconnected. That's why this, that, why that. And it, and it's sort of like you can actually watch the sixth sense a couple more times and go, oh, yeah, and still enjoy it. Whereas this, I, I feel like the they haven't sort of properly paid their dues in the story to earn that narrative. There's basically a twist followed by another twist, followed by another twist, which I think is just too much trying too hard. Like I said, um, the other thing is, is that maybe this is a, maybe this is like a Korean storytelling thing, because this is actually like an adaptation of a, of an old folktale that they've modernized, um, the two sisters. Um, but in the film itself, and I've seen this in a couple of Korean films now, they have like a big, quite a big flashback at the end that, gives you a lot of information you just didn't have and i remember they did something quite similar to that in old boy but in old boy it worked maybe because it's park chan Wook doing it and in this one it just felt like ah oh, you've just cheated us because all of that information that you just dumped on us at the end is nowhere else in the film at the beginning i mean di- i mean did it did you notice that that big flashback at the end yeah this sort of i told agree. you a lot and went mm. i mean look i mean i, I would say right it's still it's still a well done film. I remember watching at the end. I mean, because I was slightly annoyed by this. I did actually. The director's a guy called Kim Ji Woon. There are two other films of his on our watch list. I saw The Devil and The Good, The Bad, The Weird. Now, having read the summaries of those, I think they're quite different to this film. I don't. I think that he. Tr- I, I, I'm. I'm hoping that he tried something in this film that didn't completely work. And let's not put us off watching the other things here because I've heard really good things about his other films. Um hopefully they don't get bogged down in the same kind of silly twist because I do think the scenes and acting and action in this film were good. I mean, would you agree? It was well made. It's just about whether that narrative twist at the end works for you. Yeah, it felt a bit lazy the way they did it. Like It felt like they were just doing a lot of revelatory, if that's even a word, mm-hmm. flashbacks. So it mm-hmm. was like... Uh, I think they could have done a way of telling us without just saying... Like, just giving us exposition mm-hmm. that way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, look, I, th- I think that I think there are some you know some uh, talented people at work in this film. I, I think it's worth watching, but I only think it's worth watching once. Is probably how I'd conclude. Yeah, but was this a classic? Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's classics and recommended. Basically, a list of films, right, where you know it's you've heard it's brilliant and you've never got around to watching it, or someone else tells you it's really really good and you add it to the list and you get around to seeing it. It's about you. The, the the job of this 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 feature is you have to watch it you don't necessarily have to like it do you know what i mean it's just worth it's just like you know if someone recommends a good film to you you should watch it because it's a it's a good way to get you know rather than the algorithm you know that's all yeah so i'm glad i'm glad i watched it because i think what you know i i think the, the, the act of watching films that you've heard are really good or, or that other people recommended to you is a good thing. And I think it's it gets people talking, but this isn't one of the best we've done for this feature. Oh, no, definitely not. And now for the Hidden Gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention, 
and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we look at a film by one of the most successful directors of all time, but which doesn't belong either with his early independent output or his later blockbusters. The hidden gem for episode 39 is Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. So James, first things first, I don't think you'd seen The Frighteners before, right? No, no I hadn't. Um, now, this being Peter Jackson's sort of last film before he sort of went into the stratosphere with um, uh, with the Lord of the Rings films, um, I think the first Peter Jackson films you ever saw were his Lord of the Rings, right? Uh it's actually hard to pin down because I also watched King Kong round about that time as well because that had just come out. But oh, so you, might have, you might have seen that first. I then. might have. I'm not entirely sure when I first... I think it might have been 2006 when I properly started watching Lord of the Rings. Okay. And I think I watched King Kong when it came out. But yeah, round about that time. Okay, so as far as Peter Jackson's concerned, these massive epics, and I guess it definitely the absolute pinnacle of his career is is Lord of the first Lord of the Rings trilogy. His 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 career is like this massive climb to the top of the mountain. He delivers, you know, one of the best trilogies of all time. And then nothing he's done since is probably up there. And and I don't think I don't think he's really into making dramatic films anymore. He's doing sort of more documentary stuff now. Um have you seen any of his like early, early stuff? No I haven't, no. So I mean what what does it what does it, you know, in what was what's your response or how does it make you feel to find out that Peter Jackson's starting point were, was a couple of like really gory gonzo horror films that look like they cost about two quid to make, but which have this like wicked sense of humour, buckets of gore, funny stuff going on, sort of you know, sort of like strange shit happening in a in a in a, in a town in New Zealand, uh, sort of zombies and dead, and sort of just an excuse to kind of throw like uh pots of kind of gloopy stuff at the screen i mean does that does that track for you as peter jackson no i was actually quite surprised he's very much been in the kind of epic fantasy mm-hmm. um genre since the lord of the rings and obviously like you said he's doing documentaries now but this was rather bizarre i suppose to see that this is what he started with yeah i mean put put it this way right if 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 we don't talk about the frighteners if we imagine the frighteners didn't happen what you'd say about peter jackson is is in the the late 80s or early 90s he did a couple of really gloopy horror films and then he did something else called meet the feebles which wasn't as popular as that but still shows that kind of quite a dark sense of humor at work at the same time as quite sort of strong sort of you know you know material that, that is likely to offend right 18 rated material and then he does a film called Heavenly Creatures, which came out in like 94, 95. Uh, your mum is uh, quite a big fan of that film. It it was a true story about a, a celebrated and notorious case in New Zealand in the 50s where two girls form this kind of very obsessive friendship. It's like a folie à deux. They're kind of very bad for each other. Um, and seeing them going off the rails, the mother of one of the kids says they're going to separate, send one of the girls away. Uh, they can't stand to be separated, so they murder the, one of the mothers. Uh, and, uh, and in the aftermath, New Zealand, which is a quite sleepy place at the time, they don't have a lot of murders, was absolutely shocked. And it, you know, it was a, it was a, an incident that was talked about for years and years. And Peter Jackson did a very sort of quite more serious mind and quite sober film about that story. It's one of Kate Winslet's earliest films. Um, 
and there was an element of CGI in it because the girls have this kind of like very bright imagination. They sort of almost live in a fantasy land. And for the film, Peter Jackson expressed them out. There's these giant, colourful butterflies flying over overhead because they're imagining a, the world they want to live in kind of thing. And if you said from that, I remember watching that going, oh, wow, Peter Jackson's got a lot more to him than just kind of gonzo horror. This isn't just, you know, you know, he's not just going to make sort of reanimator type films all his life. He's clearly got ambitions to make more serious films. And to then find out, well, what he did after that was to go and make Lord of the Rings and make absolute film history. And you go, okay, well, good on him. He's kind of, you know, climbed the ladder, climbed the mountain really well. The Frighteners is kind of a bit of a bump in the road on that journey because he goes to Hollywood. They like him. They like heavenly creatures. They put a lot of trust in him and say, do you want to make this film? They gave him a sizable budget. It wasn't the biggest of that year. And he, and he made this movie, The Frighteners. And does The Frighteners seem like a Peter Jackson film to you, mate? Not really, no. That again, I'm quite limited in what I've seen of his. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It, it's strange because it's kind of like he, he, he started out doing one kind of film, abandoned that, made some other types of films, and then abandoned those and did these blockbuster epics. Do you know what I mean? He, it's not. He's not like someone whose career like evolved. He's made these kind of big jumps to different types of film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Ha, 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 Having said that, this one comes out in 1996. It looks to me very 90s. The clothes, the hair, the, the, the sort of the, the, the colours, the colour palette of the films and stuff. Would it surprise you to find out that Robert Zemeckis had a hand in making this film? No, that seems a little bit more likely. Because I think this was where, I mean, Robert Zemeckis in 94 has done Forrest Gump and makes quite a lot of use of things like inserting Tom Hanks' character into real life events you know he meets jfk and they use real footage of jfk and stick um tom hanks in it so he's definitely started to get in, in, interested in the possibility of what visual effects and technology can do for his filmmaking and he was definitely interested in like using cgi as much as possible he produced this film really liked peter jackson this is a script that peter jackson came up with and they said yeah let's do it and they gave him quite a lot of backing um so the other sort of point of interest about this film is that it was made in New Zealand, and I think Peter Jackson used this as a proof of concept for Hollywood to say, look, if you give me a decent budget, I can make New Zealand look like any way you like. We've got, we can do the special effects down here, we can do the films down here, we've got the production down here, and if Hollywood takes him up on it, if he says for his next thing he's going to make a really big blockbuster, he's hoping this is going to convince them he's going to do it. The only thing that went wrong with that is that this film didn't do very well at the box office. It got quite good reviews from from some quarters, but it but it was financially a flop. I mean, were you surprised to hear that this was a flop? Mm, not entirely. It's quite a niche thing. That's the thing. I mean, it's 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 quite a niche film. So if if you were going to make a film like this, it's it's a horror comedy. It's kind of got it's a lot of dark dark sense of humour. It's the basic premise is that. While Michael J. Fox's character can see ghosts, for reasons which come out in the film, he's he's become quite cynical, and he's whatever career he had before, he doesn't have now, and he uses these ghosts to be a essentially con people into thinking that he's a paranormal investigator, and the ghosts that he works with go in and haunt the house, and then he comes in and and clears the haunting just because the ghosts will leave as soon as he comes because they're all in it together. And then some other more kind of dangerous and terrifying ghosts are actually on the scene and he finds himself having to deal with that more horrifying supernatural uh, threat for real, which is a scenario I really like. 
But I mean, what sort of time of year do you think this would suit? What sort of release, what sort of profile would you expect a film this to have? What do you mean, sorry? If if you if you had a film like this in the can, would you say when would you release it? What sort of you know what would you be pitching it at? You know what sort of audience? Oh. What sort of how big would you want to make it? What sort of approach would you take to kind of sticking this out? How would you market no. it? Oh, it's hard to describe. It's it's obviously got kind of supernatural themes, but it's it's not entirely a horror because obviously it's got some funnier moments mm-hmm. but what would I picture it as I think holiday comedy is probably the best way to describe it but it's it's not not traditional comedy is it and it's not traditional horror mm-hmm. if you get what I'm saying it's kind of some sort of blend between the two for me yeah, I mean, would it surprise you to hear that its original release idea was going to be sort of in sort of round about October and it was going to be a film that hoped to kind of catch up on people who like a bit of a horror scare, not necessarily like the full the full bore horror crowd, but sort of, you know, be be like a nice sort of spooky little sort of comic treat for people in the autumn. Would that surprise you that that's where they were going to put it? Yeah. Where things went wrong, I think. I mean, I mean, I think this film's got some flaws, but where, where, where it really went, went wrong for the film was that they... The, hot, the studio really liked the film and decided in their wisdom that they were going to that it was going to be a blockbuster. So they put it out in um, uh, they actually put it out on July the fourth, up against Independence Day. Right. Well, there's your first problem. And it was also released around the same time as the Atlanta Olympics. And Peter Jackson was contacting them, going, you know, a lot of people are going to watch the Olympics. You're going to have a real kind of problem of like your audience might not actually turn out to watch it because they'll either be watching Independence Day or the Olympics. And they went, oh no, our research says you'll be fine. He says you fucking won't be, and he he turned out to be right, you know. So what happened was it just got absolutely drowned out. The other problem they had is that it was they were they were trying to make it a PG thirteen film because they wanted to appeal to a wider audience. And in the end, what that, what happened was they ended up toning it down. And I think you can see it's been toned down a little bit to try and get that PG-13. It ended up getting an R rating anyway. So Peter Jackson got a bit annoyed and decided to add some gore back in. But I think a film that could have been, I think, more fun and more successful if they just said, fuck it, we're going to make this. It's a horror film. Um, and we're going to release it in October and catch the horror audience who just want a, you know, a bit of a laugh instead of just a straight-up horror film. It ended up going up against the, the, the summer blockbusters and it just got absolutely drowned um do you think it deserved to be successful though what did you what do you think of it um yeah i wouldn't want to say that it's like i don't think i want to say any film doesn't deserve success because people have tried to work hard no matter what we think of it no matter mm-hmm. how bad we think something like disaster movie is people have still worked hard and mm-hmm. um put time and effort into it the actual enjoyment of the film was probably like where we could criticise it. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Peter, knowing what Peter Jackson's like, he's very meticulous and very passionate about the stuff that he makes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it deserved to have more success than it did, of course. Yeah, I mean, I I do have some problems with this film. I I, 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 I think the fact that they were trying to make it a PG-13 or, or a 12, that, 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 that rating system in America is the fucking bane of everyone's lives, right? I mean, do you know how the R rating system works in America? remind me of so it's basically it's the equivalent of a 15 or an 18 rating here right and over here we sort of have now now that the rating system in this country the the certificate system in this country is more sensible than it was in the old days where uh, frankly the censors the border censors needed their fucking heads examined but they're a lot more sensible now 
and a film has to be quite severe to have an 18 rating and a lot of films have got a 15 but no one under 15 can see it and everyone kind of understands that right in America, the R rating system means no one under 17 can see the film unless accompanied by an adult. Right. So you could take a five-year-old to see Aliens as long as, as, long as their parent or, or guardian had taken them into the cinema. Okay. Which is just super weird. And, and before Temple of Doom came out, you had that in your quiz like a couple of months ago. Um there was only PG. So it was a bit weird that you would actually have some films with a bit of nudity and violence and swearing in it that were PG because the alternative is an R rating. And PG-13 was this compromise to say, look, to rather than have films that are completely anodyne, let's have PG-13. And an R rating is kind of a real problem. It used to be all right. You have films like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard, but now no film in America wants to have an R rating unless it's a full-on horror movie. Because if, if you show it like... If you try and make a big block, blockbuster or, or a big mainstream film R-rated these days. People go, oh, but some child could see it. And it's like, yeah, but only because your rating system is so fucking stupid. If they had 15 slash 18 ratings there, they just say, oh, well, we'll make it a 15. Do you know what I mean? It's not the strongest of the strong. But, you know, if someone says fuck or there's a bit of blood, no problem, right? But because America has got this, films fucking bend over backwards to try and get a PG-13, which for even a horror comedy means it's just a little bit toned down. So my, my criticism of this film is that it's a little bit too like running around showing off the CGI. Because I think Robert Zemeckis was interested in the CGI and I think definitely um, Peter Jackson wanted to experiment with CGI a little bit. And there are things we just said, if they just went back a little bit to basics and just make it a bit more of a haunted house film, I would have enjoyed it a little bit more. Um, I'm not sure how much... Did you believe this was in the US? It's I mean, it's filmed in New Zealand. Did it look like America at all to you? Yeah. I suppose I didn't. I didn't pay that much attention. No, I mean, I, I thought it could be like the Pacific Northwest or Maine. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not. Yeah. It's not Chicago. I mean, I was fine. The main reason I like this film, the main reason I wanted to put it on the hidden gem, the recommend it is Michael J. Fox. This was his last leading performance in a film, and I guess back to the. I mean, we did Casualties of War for the pod, but outside of that, it's probably just Back to the Future for you, isn't it, mate? Yeah, I would say yeah. I mean, do you, what do you like him as a performer, Michael J. Fox? Yeah, I like him. I've always uh, enjoyed his performances. Um, got a lot of respect and admiration for the guy. Um, very open, um, just honest man. And yeah, I think it's a real shame that he got diagnosed with Parkinson's because he could have done more stuff. You know what I mean? He was, yeah. you know, he was the biggest thing and one of the biggest things in Hollywood when Back to Future was coming out. Mm-hmm. Um. And I'd love to have seen more because he's he's obviously still talented. Like the same thing um, with Muhammad Ali. That guy was still sharp in the brain. It's just his mm-hmm. body was letting him down. And I think we could have seen him do more things. And I think this is another example of how we can go from things like Back to the Future to this to Stuart Little to kind of TV roles. And yeah, uh, yeah, I thought it was a good performance from him. Yeah, I mean, Michael J. Fox was just such a good comic performer. I think he did struggle a little bit to get sort of roles where he's playing an adult because obviously they loved him in Back to the Future. They loved him in the sort of films where he's playing like a youth like of some kind. And he had a couple of things that were quite quite successful, like The Hard Way and, and, and uh, Doc Hollywood both did quite well. But, you know, he was an absolute smash hit when he was playing that kind of classic American high school kid. He was just so funny. He's got that nervous energy when he performs. 
What he has in this, which he doesn't really give you in any other film, it's really worth watching, is aside from, there's some great physical comedy, only he can see the ghosts, right? So there's some stuff where he's like lifting a ghost out of a trench and someone's watching him, what the fuck's he doing? Some great physical comedy from, from Michael J. Fox, which goes well with the kind of knockabout. There's a, there's like a, this is, a lot of this is sort of knockabout fun, but there's just a little bit of extra darkness to his performance here. And he's just, he's playing a character who is, he's, he's haunted in, inside as well as outside, if, if you get my meaning. And there's something about him. You, he was showing a really interesting side to him in this, which is genuinely worth a watch. So while I don't think this is the most brilliant film ever, I really do think it's worth watching because I think it's 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 a, it's, it's a fun film on the whole and you do get a little bit of extra, something you don't normally see from Michael J. J. Fox. I mean, would you agree about the sort of slight darkness in his performance? Yeah, I think it was interesting to see uh, a guy that we're used to playing these kind of younger, goofy like not hopeless i'm trying to think of the white road uh right word for it but you know the kind of character i mean like these young kind of he plays the sort of scrappy underdog doesn't he really yeah well. exactly and then playing a kind of guy with darker tones you know I, I thought it was it was good yeah good to see it, it wasn't it didn't blow us out of the park did it no, no. it didn't it wasn't going to win any oscars but you know it's uh i, th- I mean look, i think i think in another reality if they put it out in october and said fuck it let's just not worry too much about about it getting a PG-13 rating and making it a blockbuster. I think it would have been a, a decent enough hit in in that time of year. And it would be looked back on as, yeah, that was quite fun. That was an enjoyable movie. And it's a hidden gem because I, I think a lot of people haven't seen it. I know a lot of people said, oh, well, it was a big, you know, it had a wide release at the time and everything. But I just don't think it gets mentioned very much now. And it is worth just going back to it. There's some fun stuff. The the, the One of the main antagonists is, was uh, played the main character in Reanimator, which if you're my age, was a lot of fun to see him do something um it's a good job they didn't give the role to jim carrey is all i can say um and michael j fox makes you invest in and care about the story and he's genuinely genuinely worth a watch so give it a go i I think this film's a a fun little movie and i think you should give it a go it's sort of like it was the last chance to see jackson do something on a smaller scale before lord of the rings i think it's a fun little movie Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at how a film director with a reputation for hard-boiled crime thrillers thought he'd found his perfect match in adapting a great novel by the author of LA Confidential. The one that got away for episode 39 is Joe Carnahan's White Jazz. So, James, I don't think you're a a James Elroy fan per se. I don't think you've like read his books or anything. No, I know you are though, because one of my, I don't know why this is a memory of mine, but my memory of when we lived in, um, was it London or yeah. maybe Essex? You had um, a bookcase and it had uh, a big grey James, James Elroy book on it and you're a massive fan of the guy. You've, uh, you've, I think you've met him. You've got books signed by him. Yeah, I've got, I've, that, that big grey book is the Cold 6000, which, uh, which James Elroy signed for me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm a big fan. I mean, I I'm a big fan of this because I saw LA Confidential. I heard the book's really good. Your mum read the book in Italian, which was a challenge by itself. Um, Just her showing off. <laughs> yeah, super complicated story. Um, that I mean, that that's interesting. If we were doing a book podcast, that would be an interesting sort of thing to examine because someone did a an Italian translation of that, where because LA Confidential is all film noir and it's set in the fifties and there's lots of crime slang, there's lots of kind of police 
like swearing each other, that sort of thing. Someone doing the translation tried to come up with what the genuine Italian equivalent of that is. Like what would Italian criminals in the 50s and Italian cops in the 50s say to each other if they were being like a bit noir, which is, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that someone tried that much. Anyway, that sh- just shows the reach of LA Confidential. So I read LA Confidential only in English, um, really loved it. And Tony, friend of the pod, who I, I used to work with a long time ago, um, uh, we got friendly, we got talking. I told him how I liked LA Confidential. So you've got to read all of James Elroy's other books. They're fucking incredible. Like LA Confidential is the third in a quartet of books that he's written. And now he's moved on to something called American Tabloid, which is going to blow your mind, blah, blah, blah. We went to that book signing with James Elroy together and each got a copy of Cosmic Stars. So we bonded over Elroy and his books are really incredible stuff. And American Tabloid is one of the best books I've ever read. So we're not alone in thinking Elroy is really, really sort of amazing. And it just writes about this kind of dark, turbulent world of the 40s, 50s and 60s really well into the 70s a little bit with his later books. Um, what about the films that have been done of his, of his, like L.A. Confidential and The Black Dahlia? I assume you've seen L.A. Confidential. I'm not sure if you've seen The Black Dahlia. No? Uh, no, I haven't, no. All right. What did you think of L.A. Confidential? Is that, is that a, is that a favourite of yours? Yeah, I quite, I quite enjoyed it. Um, it's quite, uh, it's very neo-noir, mm. if that's the right way to describe it. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that you'd find interesting about that period is that, that there's four books. There's The Black Dahlia, which is based on a, a real-life murder. And if you read um, Jem Zawori's memoir about his childhood and his own mum being murdered, there are some really frightening parallels between the murder of his mother and the murder of the, the Black Dahlia woman. Like, very, very scarily similar. You can see why he was fascinated by that. And for him, he used that as a jumping-off point to just examine the, the big characters, the flawed flawed corrupt and terrifying but also compelling i think mostly men who inhabited that world he did a film called the big nowhere sorry a book called the big nowhere he then did la confidential and did this white jazz and i think all of those stories have, have informed even the film even stuff film and tv that isn't an, an, an attempt to be elroy but it's very very influenced by him i mean you've seen true detective yeah uh yes and I, th- I, th- I had to think about that one. Yeah, I think I think if you were to read some of the... If you were to go on Wikipedia and read the plot summaries and the storylines and the ideas in that LA quartet of Elroy's, you would look back and they go, oh, yeah, the true detective guys have definitely read James Elroy. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of influence on, on film and television, right? Um, I mean, the thing with LA Confidential, which is why I think White, White Jazz would have been quite hard to do, is that LA Confidential is like at least like 600 pages long and very long and complicated story, which really gets to the dark heart of politics, corruption, sex and violence, you know, the, the corrupt police, corrupt politicians, a few honest people trying to do something differently, um, uh, the media, there's, there's a whole world in there. And what LA Confidential did very skillfully was to give you a great story which can't possibly do everything from the book. But if you read, it doesn't matter which order you read them, and if you watch the film and read the book or read the book and watch the film, you realise that the film has given you the best possible distillation of the book without being able to kind of tell you, every, you know, it's had to cut plot lines out, but it gives you it gives you enough of the book to kind of be a satisfying adaptation. White Jazz just doubles down on the noir. It's really dark. It features a guy called Dave Klein, and it's about LA in the late 50s, and it pivots from the, uh, like, the, the film noir stuff from, like, LA Confidential and Police Corruption and Shady Business Deals. It starts to show you what's going to happen to the new America of the 60s. 
you know, because actually all of those people, the the politicians, the criminals, the mob are still going to be there and they're going to be pulling, they're going to be behind the scenes of the, of, of the new America. And Dave Klein is essentially, he's got a law degree and he's a cop, but he also works for the mob. So he's completely compromised and he's in this downward spiral and it, and it just follows him, you know, killing witnesses. You know, he's the one that they asked to, to investigate mob corruption on the police force. And yet he's the center of mob corruption on the police force. And it also has the two of the main characters from the previous film, uh, LA Confidential, going toe-to-toe. Ed Exley, who Guy Pearce played, and uh, Dudley Smith, who James Cromwell played, because Dudley Smith doesn't die in the book of LA Confidential. So it's a great book. You can understand why someone would want to... Um, adapt it uh, and along comes joe carnahan now how much of joe carnahan do you know of his stuff are you aware of uh i'm not sure if i have seen what what are his kind of big successes i think smoking aces is probably the film that most people have seen right, of his because no, that's kind of like a like like a, almost like a shoot him up film he did a film called narc with jason patrick and ray liotta which was very good and probably the reason people decided to give him a shot on um uh on uh this film he was in and around Mission Impossible 3. Simon Pegg actually did an interview the other day where he said he actually auditioned for the Mission Impossible 3 that Joe Carnahan was going to do, and that didn't happen, and then J.J. Abrams brought him in because he worked with a lot of the same people that he'd worked with on Lost in his other series. Um, so he, he writes a script. It's a really interesting script. People love the script. That's why they wanted to give him a shot. He didn't have a huge amount of kind of success behind him when he did that, when he was doing this. This is the early 2000s. Curtis Hansen, who directed L.A. Confidential, he'd had two quite big hits before that, the hand that, rocks the, the hand that Rocks the Cradle and the River Wild. So he kind of had enough going, oh, I think you might have some commercial strength to do this movie. Carnahan had done Narc, which was a tough cop drama, definitely like in the that world of kind of corrupt and sort of dark, flawed characters. And people love the script. It's written in the third person. So the stage directions for the Dave Klein character don't say Dave walks into a room and beats somebody up. It actually says, I walk into a room and beat somebody up because the film's written in the, the book's written in the first person. So he's written the script in the first person from Dave Klein's character as well, which people found really interesting. Um, a lot of people tried to do this. Nick Nolte was trying to get it done and he'd have been perfect for the Dave, Dave Klein character who's in a film called Q&A where he just plays the same kind of uh, uh, corrupt copies unraveling. He would have been perfect um, but his version of the film doesn't come off, and by the 2000s, he's nearly 60, so that's not going to happen. I'll tell you who steps in. Uh, George Clooney was going to do this. Okay. Now, what are your thoughts of George Clooney playing a, a, a character as dark and flawed and damaged uh, as this compared to everything else you've ever seen George Clooney do? Yeah, I think we should say yes to something like that, just because we're used to him being that kind of suave um whether he's robbing banks or anything he does he's even like as a politician he manages to not seem too slimy yeah um but yeah i think it would have been interesting to see because we're so used to him playing more more so now he kind of plays more kind of like fatherly figures like um, mm. what was that film called the descendants yeah um but yeah definitely i'm all for that yeah i mean i'm not sure he's perfectly right for the part because physically the description of this guy is that It'd be more like someone like Mickey Rourke. Do you know what I mean? Like Mickey Rourke, before his face completely turned to putty, um, would, you know, Mickey Rourke around about the time of The Wrestler would have been perfect to play this kind of really sort of beat-up, damaged character. George Clooney is a little bit too kind of suave looking for this. 
But this is like the early to mid-2000s. It's around about the time he did Michael Clayton. So that tracks for you, doesn't it, mate? Because he's trying to do darker material at that point, isn't he? And Yeah. And, and I think Joe Carnahan on his own isn't going to get this film made, but George Clooney wanting to be in the main part, then you've got a movie. There's a chance that he's going to get it made. Um, and, and I think the challenge is, the reason this didn't happen is it... it, it even with George Clooney on board, it's like, hey, George, could you, could you do another Oceans film? Can you do another film where you're kind of like hanging out with Jennifer Lopez and, and sparks are flying because of all the sexual tension? He's like, no, I'm trying to do this darker stuff. So it'll get made, but it it's it needs a bit of a push, right? Um, Chris Pine was going to be in a supporting role because he was starting to get um, he was starting to get big. Um, but like 2006, 2007, he drops out to play Kirk in the Star Trek reboot, which career-wise is probably the right move for him. And then George Clooney has this um, log jam. He was doing a film called Leathernecks. There's a couple of other passion projects of his that he's truly, really trying to get done. This project's delayed. There's other projects he's got coming, got coming down the line. He's got some tough choices to make about the films he's going to be in. And by all accounts that I've read up on this, um, he, he just decided that he couldn't do this. So he drops out of White Jazz, at which point Joe Carnahan... He's not he's not a massive name in and of himself, and he's just struggling. He doesn't have a a lead actor who can get the film made. You know, if you were gonna, you know, it's, it's the same reason that like Scorsese's worked with Leonardo DiCaprio so many times. It's like you know, find me a good actor who's box office and can do the job, right? Um, and he didn't have it, so the film basically died there because they didn't have a star that could be in it. Um, are you? Given that, is this something that you'd like to see on film, or what, um, or, or compared to what, or to the listeners' views that these sorts of things would be suited to, to like modern day TV? I think either or. Uh, you know me; I love a, I love a lot of television, and if it's a good adaptation, I'm not too fussed if it's a film or a TV mm-hmm. one. I think with a TV one, you get to flesh it out a little bit more. And I know mm-hmm. his books; his books are quite in depth, aren't they, James mm-hmm. Elroy? They're quite. Yeah. So maybe it does lend itself better to that, but um, yeah, I know this is obviously a film podcast, but as as long as there's a, a adaptation that does it justice, I'm not too too fussed. Yeah, I mean, and this isn't as glaring as like Tom Cruise playing Jack Reacher, right? But what what do you think of a of a central character being played by someone who's physically a lot kind of suaver and better looking than he's meant to be in in the story because you need a star? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. I don't know. What What are your thoughts on that? And maybe I can can expand. Well, I understand the compromise that needs to be made. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, I mean, this material is really fucking dark, right? Like Dave Klein is like incestuously attracted to his sister. He murders a witness, just throws him out a fucking window, and then picks up the phone like and talks to someone like nothing's happened. He's a really hard character to sympathise with. And the reason you kind of find it compelling is that James Elroy gives these stories this kind of like just compelling drama that he's driven, or even if he's sometimes his characters are driven to something more ambitious, like an American tabloid. Um, and sometimes you just see all these characters like driven to their own fucking destruction. And also in the book, the, the fact that there's two main police officers, one who's a bit more of a politician. And although he's obviously more of a good guy than the dirty, corrupt kind of, you know, old, you know, old school cop who just wants to, you know, 
run the show and be in the pockets of the mob. That kind of battle between those two big beasts that your main character just becomes collateral damaging. It's just really compelling stuff. And maybe you have to compromise that. And George Clooney would... I don't know if George Clooney would go undergo some sort of physical transformation. I mean, actors are always better looking than the characters they play in, in most cases anyway. But part of me... Part of me wishes someone had, had, had given Nick Nolte a bash at this in the mid-90s. He would have been fucking perfect. Yeah, definitely. So, if you want to know what this film would have been like, um, there's a couple of good articles online. The usual books that I uh, that I uh, read has got a story about this in it. You can find the script online if you look. You can go and dig and, and, and have a look at the script. It's quite an interesting script to read. Uh, and for an idea of what the film would have actually, you know, to, to the other, you know, reference point films, definitely LA Confidential because it features some overlap characters. James already does this, where often characters from one book overlap into the next, and then into the next, and then and then, for example, there's a character in this one called Pete Bondurant, who's a supporting character in this and becomes central to the next book he does. And it's not like it's a sequel; it just follows on. Um, the Black Dahlia, look, it isn't very good. I hate to say it isn't very good because I love Brian De Palma who directed it, but that does have some. If you know anything about James Elroy, there's a lot of interest in watching a Black Dahlia film because you just see the the murder and the, the investigation. You go, wow, no wonder James Elroy was obsessed with that. And then the other sort of modern day noir films like Chinatown and Joe Carnahan's Narc would give you an idea of how he would have done it. And that's four interesting films to watch anyway. But um, yeah, for me, I think if this is ever done, it'll probably be a, a series now. Um, but James Elroy is very cynical about this. He once said, all adaptations of my of my films are dead. When Tony and I were at that book signing, people kept asking about, oh, are they going to do American tabloid? Are they going to do white jazz? And he just kept answering the same question. Hollywood is dysfunctional. And I don't, I assume that all of my, all, all the adaptations of my works are going to fail. And he just kept saying that over and over again to every question they asked about his adaptations. So I get the feeling that this might just be a bit too hard to do, which is a shame. But if you watch things like True Detective or like other dark stuff, you'll see his, his fingerprints are all over Hollywood, really. We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we finished asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month we look at how the hacks behind the spate of early 2000s horror remakes decided to have a crack at a John Carpenter film, only to find out it wasn't as easy as the old master made it look. The remake hate watch for episode 39 is the 2005 version of The Fog. So James, have you seen the original version of The Fog? No, um, I'm not going to lie, before we went into this, I have seen one film related to foggy, um, like villains. I suppose is that the way to describe the fog? But it was it was the mist, the two thousand seven yeah, film. Yeah, it's a very different kind of thing. Yeah, but it's it's a supernatural mist slash fog thing that floats into town, kills everything, and then there's a big plot twist at the end. Mm-hmm. And I went into the fog thinking, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, I mean the well, fact just is... with that premise alone. So I imagine if I went and watched the nineteen eighty version, mm. or was it nineteen? 19- yeah, nineteen eighty with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, 
I would probably have the same co- sort of attitude to it because yeah, I, I mean, just find it a bit fucking boring. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is for you, because this has already happened, it doesn't look like anything new to you. I mean, the, the original Fog does have the advantage of having got there first, basically. Yeah, and having John Carpenter, which yeah. I've not seen. And I yeah. know John Carpenter is much better at this type of thing. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, jo- John Carpenter was, you know, uh, brilliant at this sort of thing. And also, even though The Fog isn't one of his best films, it's kind of... he. he he does it as like a chilling ghost story that's not like a full-on horror. He does a really nice job of making a quite atmospheric kind of thriller story with like this supernatural element. And he doesn't expect you to take it super seriously. I know The Mist is one of these kind of films that's this kind of shattering kind of like final act, which is really kind of hard, hard to take. Um, and having having had those two things, you've had the original idea for the horror movie and you've had The Mist... You've got to be, you know, question the wisdom of someone going, oh, I think there's some mileage left in that story. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, if you, if you just look at this, there's so many horror remakes they've done in the 2000s, which you've got nothing, no interest apart from, let's take a, a film idea people have heard of and have another crack. We, we've done a couple of them for the podcast, or a few actually. Nightmare on Elm Street, The Hitcher, The Wicker Man, and Dawn of the Dead. And Dawn of the Dead is probably the best of that bunch. That is actually... A, a, a decent film but the other three were, were terrible um and there's been so many others they they've remade halloween texas chainsaw massacre evil dead friday the 13th carrie piranha the omen day of the dead night of the living dead poltergeist the ring the hills have eyes the crazies the amityville horror pet cemetery and th- this one i mean you're quite right it's it's kind of it's all played out before they've even decided to make this movie isn't it yeah yeah, you're right. It, I mean, the, the, you know what's going to happen, don't you? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the, the original idea was quite was quite a fun one. Basically, what happened was that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, his producing partner, and I think for a while he he was married to her. But anyway, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, they were the they were the people who brought you Assault and Precinct Precinct Thirteen, Halloween, Escape from New York. Then you had to make an entertaining, you know, they were they were a bit more than a B movie, but they were like, you know, they were like they were special because John Carpenter did them, and they were like, you know, good good sort of exploitative fun right and he's in the uk in the 70s i think he's promoting assault on precinct 13 so it's like 77 something like that and they basically said look we've got the day off let's go and visit stonehenge so they get in a car and they drive to stone from london to, to stonehenge to have a look at the old stones you know you don't often get the chance right and they're there kind of late in the day and it's the, the sun's starting to set it's getting a bit dark and this mist rolls in, or this fog, whatever it is, it rolls in because the weather's changed, and it just suddenly gets colder. So he goes from it being warm to suddenly have this rather chilled feeling, and this fog sort of closes in over Stonehenge, which is kind of old, kind of spooky-looking place anyway. And because there's still a bit of sun or moonlight, and because I think they have some lights when it gets darker at Stonehenge, the mist is glowing. The mist rolls in, and it's glowing. And because John Carpenter and Deborah Hill are filmmakers, they go... Oh, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be uh, that? That'd be quite a good thing to happen in a movie, and it was based on nothing more than that. So they said, "Oh, what should we do?" And they said, "It's the centenary of a of a of a town being founded," and it turns out the town was founded on, um, you know, frankly murdering some some people by making them sort of crash on the rocks, and you're standing there kind of celebrating your success, and they've come back to get you. And the reason the original film works is that they don't mess about. They, they they get into the story. They frame it as a ghost story. They have John Houseman telling a spooky story to a bunch of kids at the start. And then the mist rolls in. 
and John Carpenter sticks the music on the top of it and he gives it a bit of a glow and he gives it a bit of atmosphere. And what you don't get in the, the new film, you, but you, you got in the old film, was these um, uh, figures appear in the mist who are the kind of diseased, kind of dying, sort of back-to-life kind of ghosts of the of the the people on the ship that you killed and they're here with some big rusty hooks and they're here to take revenge, right? And it works. It, I mean, he just about got away with it. He had to do some reshoots to make the original work, but it's a fun movie. It's quite atmospheric. And if you if you look at the, the poster or the, or the video case for the fog and you see like the glowing the glowing fog and then the then the 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 the, the evil kind of, or the, the sort of vengeful creatures in the mist you go yeah that'd be quite fun to watch that's it that's literally what it is. it's very unpretentious stuff and i genuinely i mean can you think of any reason why they thought that the, the remake was going to work cuz they're just trying to ride on the coattails of the success of the first one maybe mm. but i mean like every other remake you watch yeah i mean I guess I mean, so. It's, the thing, the thing that is weird about this one, I don't want to spend too much on it because I think the the remake restoration is more interesting. But one thing about this film is that you know, like one of the listeners kind of said, was that a lot of these other films, like you know, Evil Dead, Friday the Thirteenth, Piranha, the the twenty first century remakes, they tended to go all out for the gore and the jump scares, right? So while they tend to be completely unworthy of the original films, they at least try and give the your basic average horror audience a good scare, right? This one, they they zagged when everyone else was zigged, and and they went for a PG thirteen rating and toned everything down, which makes it all the more sort of insipid. It's sort of like they make it a teen movie, and they've kind of said, "Oh, well, let's not make it too scary." I mean, were you were you scared at any point watching this film? Were you even startled by anything jumping out of the fog or anything like that no, at any point during this film? That, that's the thing. I just think these kind of films are just they're just shit setting themselves up like that. Like the best horror films, for example, The Shining. It's scary because you, I don't know. You can you can cause that kind of fear of a kind of main soul villain, or not necessarily a soul villain, but for example, you know, you've got Jack Nicholson in The Shining. He is he's terrifying, and you know, whenever you see him, you're scared. But whenever you see the fog, you just think, oh well, meh. Yeah. I think there's a lack of unpredictability. There's a lack, yeah. There's a lack of unpredictability. I don't even know if that's a word. Mm. But with the with Jack Nicholson, you don't know what he's going to do next. You don't know when he's going to pop up next. Mm-hmm. But uh, with the fog, I, I guess you could kind of do that where you can have the fog creeping in, and you think, oh no, there's the fog behind you. They're gonna, it's gonna get you, kind of thing. But it's just, I think it's just a bit weak. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, Kevin, uh, uh, John Carpenter did find when he did his first cut of the film that like oh actually is because he, he didn't want to do another like out and out halloween style horror he was trying to do something a little different and this is a ghost story and he realized that it wasn't gonna quite work the way he'd done it so he had to kind of edit it and kind of uh, change a few bits to just give it a bit more of a chill but it's like um the original works quite well because the 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 fog is just the um the warning that the danger is coming and then when you're in the fog, you can't see what's coming. And then the fog clears. You go, oh, shit, they're here. And start, you know, the, the hooks start flying around. Mm-hmm. And, and and it works because a skilled craftsman has said, he basically said, look, this isn't the best idea I've ever had, but the, the fog looks cool the way he's done it. And he's going to he's gonna give it a bash and he makes it really, it makes it quite fun. This is, 
this came and went. I mean, this um, adjusted for inflation, this cost four or five times as much as the original film did and did about half as well at the box office. Uh, it's just, it's a nothing film. It's just, it's it's an interesting sort of footnote to that kind of 2000s horror. It said, it's as shit as all the other remakes of that year, but without even a little bit of gore or kind of, because they basically made it a 12. So, fuck it, I don't care. Um, utterly insipid. Um, do you, I mean, do you think there's any place for this kind of old-fashioned ghost story anymore in, like, movies? I mean, they still do it, like Mark Gattis and stuff does some quite fun stuff on the telly for this, but... Do you think this this is a bit old fashioned now, isn't it? This sort of entertainment. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a big kind of horror guy as it is, but I think for a horror film to work, you need you just need something better than the fucking fog. You just yeah, but, I mean, I mean, in the original film, it wasn't just the fog. That was the whole point. The fog, the fog didn't kill you. What was in the fog killed you. The creatures in the fog. Yeah, but even then, like it's it's look, it's not John Carpenter's best idea. I'll admit. Yeah, like if the, the creatures themselves are scared. I mean, I suppose you could say like the the vibes I get from the original Fog are somewhat similar to the the kind of creatures that you'd have in in Les Name a, a quiet place. You know yeah, I mean? you can't so you like, can't see them, and that's what's scary. And, they, and then and then you see them at the last minute when they're just about and, to get you. Yeah, exactly. And they're scary, and you can build that kind of fear and suspense and tension that way. But yeah, you know. Alien's a great horror film. You don't really see the alien, and when it does, it scares you. But when you see the fog, you think, oh, well, yeah, the monsters are in there somewhere, so you just it's don't have to go in that thing now. There's only, I only have one, one other thing to add, and then you can, if you have a sign off, you can. What is interesting is that often I would say, hang on, James, you've been a bit harsh there, like comparing this horror movie to The Shining. Not every film can be The Shining. But in this case, it's really interesting that you would pick The Shining. Because the final shot in this film evokes The Shining, doesn't it? There's a photo, old-time photograph mm-hmm. at the end, which is clearly a rip-off of The Shining. I just think far better films than this would be wise to avoid comparisons to The Shining. Do you know what I mean? Or, or yeah, even like picking from it, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Anything else to add about this? No, it's no, just we pathetic. Can, we can consign this to the dustbin. So for the remake restoration, the film we decided that we'd like to redo, well, this is actually a nomination of mine, is is The Shipping News. I don't know if you've you've seen that originally, mate. I think I tried watching it with your parents mm-hmm. when I was visiting once. And yeah. it, it didn't really seem like my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, obviously, we should remake it anyway because it has that fucking creep in it. Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's a story worth telling, we can tell it again and do it you know, properly without him. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. a shame, really. Yeah, I mean, I I can tell why why my mum would want to show you this film because she loved the book as I did. It's a great book. It's by Annie Proulx, who wrote the story that Brokeback Mountain is based on. Um, yeah, and it's about a man who is uh, absolutely kind of broken and not doesn't fit in. His whole life is a mess where he lives down in in, in New York, and his his wife is killed. In the, in the process of cheating on him and leaving him with all his money and trying to sell one of their kids. Um, and he's an absolute doormat. And when she's killed, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to bring up these kids. And his aunt comes to stay and says, look, let's go back to Newfoundland, which is where you're from. You're born there, but you never lived there. Um, and try and make a go of it there. And 
you learn about this community. And the reason my mum loves it is because it could be where she grew up, although she grew up in the west of Scotland, that kind of quirky remote community where there are some proper weird characters and kind of some rambunctious characters. And she loves the bit in, in, in the book and the film where the postman's just had enough, so he throws the letters in, in the harbour because that happened in her fishing village she grew up in. So she likes that sort of thing because she recognises those communities. But I, I'm, I could picture her saying something like, "This is nowhere near as good as the f- as the book, but it's it's still worth watching." Kind of thing. I think she watches the Shipper News because there's no other version of that story on film. But I think it could be done a lot better, which is why I nominated it. Kevin Spacey plays the main character. Now, if you've not read the book, like you you won't be able to i suppose comment on whether he's like suitable to play the character from the story but what what did you think of kevin spacey playing this kind of rather weak character that you meant to feel sorry for and be kind of rooting for even before like the allegations what would you think of kevin spacey playing that kind of character yeah i think he's quite good at playing kind of like wounded characters i think he played the although he turns out he wasn't in the usual suspects kaiser sozi mm-hmm. um has a limp and it sort of distracts you from the thought of him being the big mm-hmm. bad at the end of the film um and Just... what i'm think i think i'm thinking of another film that he was also he played like a sort of more vulnerable character so i wouldn't say american beauty it's a vulnerable character but it's a character that's dealing with a lot of emotional kind of yeah i know what you mean problems and it's not it's not necessarily i mean it is a vulnerability having like a, playing a character that has like or a, the character having these vulnerabilities and emotions and that kind of fragility of themselves so i think it was a it was a, a good choice but he, he is quite smarmy i think looking i think the allegations are just kind of spoiling everything he's been in because anything he does now you think oh no you're just a prick aren't you yeah i mean i'm, I'm not going to claim any foreknowledge of kevin spacey being the way he's accused of being but i have to say i've never i've never got on as well with kevin spacey playing a character i'm meant to wholly sympathize with i always like a character like him playing a character where he's actually a bit of a dick the the the, the, yeah. the the way I liked him in um, Usual Suspects, so while he was kind of very put upon, he also had a kind of just the way he was kind of talking to the cops, and it, there was just something about him that was off. And then at the end, when you realise what's really off about him, you go, "Oh fucking hell!" But then when you see him playing kind of like the character he plays in LA Confidential, where he's a smarmy arsehole, and you're kind of rooting for him when he decides to do the right thing, but he's far he's far better channeling his smarminess, in my opinion. Now. He's really miscast in this part for the the film flight from a physical point of view. Let's cover that first. In the book, the Coyle character that he plays, he's very tall, sort of very broad-shouldered. He's overweight, he's clumsy, he's sort of like a big sort of broken bear kind of thing. And he doesn't fit in where he is and then moves to Newfoundland and he kind of... You know, people recognise him. Oh yeah, I knew your granddad. You look a bit like him, kind of thing. And he he's, he's actually goes somewhere where he actually looks like he fits in a bit more. And he's got. He's also he's got this kind of big chin that he's very very self conscious of. And the whole there's, there's a couple of things that the story hinges on. One of the most important things in the book is that it gets to a point in in the film where he's settled into Newfoundland. He, he's actually for all the flaws and, and weirdness and, and, and things that are, you know, it doesn't, not to put, put too fine a point on it, there's all kinds of, you know, bad stuff happens everywhere, right? He feels like he yeah. fits in there and he's kind of forgotten, he's kind of forgotten to feel like that kind of broken doormat that he used to be. 
because he's just getting on with his life. He's got so much going on and he starts writing for the local paper and he's bringing up his kids and he's fixing up a house and he's trying to learn how to like sail a boat and everything. And he sees himself in the mirror after a couple of years and he's not like overweight anymore because he's, he's much more physically active. He's just he's sort of more solid looking. And he's grown a beard so his chin doesn't kind of look quite so prominent. And he's wearing kind of, he's just been on the boat. He's wearing fisherman's clothes. And he looks in the mirror and goes, I look like I'm from fucking Newfoundland. And suddenly he's comfortable in his own skin. And you realize that he's actually, all he needed to do was fucking find where he was meant to be. And obviously in the story, he's a yeah. character. But it's such a powerful scene. It's like one of those one of those scenes in a book when you go, oh my God, this is, this is what, what it's all about. And you don't have it in the book because he physically can't do it. He's miscasting that part. And I was I was racking my brains to think who could do this. It's like Tim Robbins is really tall and is the same age as Kevin Spacey. Maybe he could have done it. I think the character, I, I th- the actor I'd love to have seen it doing was Vincent D'Onofrio. Because okay. he's big, he's chunky, he's he's like six foot three. He's a really big bloke. He doesn't look like Celtic, like you're meant to look from from Newfoundland, but I don't know, dye his hair or something. But you needed someone like that. You needed physically someone like this. Is this is a case of Tom Cruise's Jack Reacher? The guy's physically not right to play the part. So that's the first yeah. thing you need to change if you're going to do this film uh, properly. Uh, the second thing is, is um, the guy directed this film, Lassie Halstrom, he's done a lot of these very sort of middle-brow, average kind of uh, adaptations of books. I'm not I'm not sure I've ever seen a Lassie Halstrom film that I've gone, oh, that was shit, I hated it. But I have seen quite a lot of, of films of his, especially when I've read the book, and I've gone, I mean, that was okay, but it's nothing like as good as the book. And he really doesn't, capture the 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 essence of the film very well um i mean where are you generally on like film adaptations of great novels is there a novel you've loved and, and read and loved and then seen the film of that kind of that would give you an idea of what you're looking for in a in a film adaptation of a book so a film that has just beautifully adapted the book or, or not, or you know, having read the book and and then seen the film of the book, you know, what what did you what did you look for and what did you see? I, I was wondering if maybe you'd read To Kill a Mockingbird before you saw the film. I'm not sure if you uh, did. Yes. Yeah, so at school, I I think we read the book, and then the teacher said once we've all read the book, we could watch the film. And what did you think of that? What did you think of that adaptation? Yeah, I mean, it's tremendous. It's one of the classics. It's one of the most classic films of all time. Gregory Peck putting in a performance that stopped Peter O'Toole winning for uh, Lawrence of Arabia. It's it's that good, and I think it does. Yeah, it does a good, um, does the book justice. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. In but, terms of doing the book just book justice, there's always there's always something from the book that doesn't make it into the film, isn't there? And I guess I guess it comes down to how the people adapting the film handle that, right? Yeah, I think it's hard when the the books are so beloved and can just go into all sorts of knowledge. I mean, I don't know how long it takes you to read like a, a 500 page book these days, but it mm-hmm. could take you a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and a two hour film can't mm-hmm. do that justice. Even like the Harry Potter films, there's seven books and they had to make eight films out of it. And yeah, and, they and the Lord easily... of the Rings missed all sorts of stuff. And yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at the TV series of, of Bosch, I don't know if you even watched that, but that's like police procedural and that's based on books. And those books are like your basic average 300 to 350 pages long. And they usually kind of combine two books and, and do a 10-episode series for that. So one mo- one two-hour movie from a book is hard, right? And it's all about whether you kind of capture the essence of, 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 of the book right in the film. Like LA Confidential is almost the, you know, the great version of that. It's like there's loads of stuff missing, 
from the book, but that they still capture what the book, the flavor of the book, well enough. This just doesn't do that at all. What this film is like, you know, do you remember when Gary Lineker was suspended from Match of the Day and all the other presenters refused to present it either? So they just gave you the highlights, and the film is twenty minutes long, and it showed you that basically without the the chit chat, your 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 highlights is like a, a nineteen minute match gets distilled down to like a five minute highlights reel yeah this this film is like that and i'm not suggesting that they make the film like really long and everything but they just the whole thing with this right is that he goes to newfoundland right and you get a, you get a little flavor of what it's like when he goes to newfoundland there's a little bit in the film where that people are giving each other shit in the cafe and you just see kevin spacey's character like smile like he's like oh, I, I, I like oh this is all right i, I kind of get this place do you know what i mean and you get a little bit of like the daughter being um, uh, uh, sort of somewhat sensitive to to the um, to the place and kind of getting a weird feeling about the place. That there's a certain magical realist element to the book, and they give you a bit of that in the film. But what they don't give you is Newfoundland is a kind of strange place. They they, need, they needed to explain the accent because everyone was. I thought this is this island. The accent doesn't make any sense, but the Newfoundland accent is really weird, right? But they needed, they needed to give you the feeling that this is like a weird, rowdy, remote place. It's economically deprived because of all the changes in Canada. It's like it's like a foreign land to a lot of people. But to Coyle, he's finally found his home. Do you know what I mean? And for all its faults, he kind of gets this place. And this place and its people get him. And that's what you need to see in the in, in, in the books. You, need, you needed to capture that quirky rowdiness of, of it. And you get a bit of it from the, from the newspaper stuff. But you really needed to get that. And this is me monologuing a bit, but I think the other thing you really need to get is the way this book is framed, the way this film is framed, sorry, is Kevin Spacey's almost like telling it from a um, first-person angle. He goes, this is what I was like, this is the kind of person I was. And then you go and he goes to Newfoundland and changes and there's a little kind of narration at the end about how everything's changed him. So it feels like a first-person narration. And that is completely wrong for this book. This, The book and the film needs to be a third-person narration. Because the whole the whole of the book is you find out about people from the stories that get told about them, and then you meet the person, and you hear a bit more about the the true story behind them. You get you get their version of events versus other people's version of events. It's like if you wanted to know about Malig, where my mum grew up, you could sit with your granny, and she'd tell you stories, but she wouldn't tell you like from the beginning to the end. She'd go, "Oh yeah, there was the postman, and he did this, and there was that person," and, and it, like that patchwork tells you the story of the of of the place. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's what it needs to be. And this this just tries to give the editor highlights. And a couple of the things that the 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 the, the Halasia Halston film film gets wrong is they cast Kate Blanchett as the part of Quill's wife who dies. And because you got Kate Blanchett, and because there is a lot of event there, there's quite a lot of story before before the family even gets to Newfoundland because they've got to let it play out. Because you're not going to bring Kate Blanchett in for two minutes, right? And if they'd done that, instead of dramatising it scene for scene, they had a third-person narration or someone else telling the story. Oh, yeah, this is Coyle. His wife was horrible to him, cheated on him, treated him like shit, and then died in a car accident trying to steal his money. And that's why he's here in Newfoundland now. Do you know what I mean? And then you could flash back to stuff, yeah? You could then fill in the gaps later as you go. Because that's all... that you. Every single person you meet in the story, someone else tells you something about them that makes you think, oh, wow, that's really interesting. The father and son have fallen out over kind of going to sea and whether whether it's too dangerous. And then you meet the characters. And it's like, this is a book about the stories people tell about each other and then the stories they tell about themselves. And at the end of the book, you go, oh, this is Newfoundland. For all its faults, for all its weirdness, 
this is where this guy belongs and now he's healed himself and all the stuff about the daughter and her sensitivity to the atmosphere the aunt's story and everything else it it that's the story you've got to tell and i think this could have been this is one of the greatest books i've ever read the shipping news and it could have been one of the best films of all time and it's really genuinely worth a remake for someone who can find a physical character maybe david harbour now if you were going to do it now and a, and a director really gets the material to tell the story of this place and how Quill fits into it. Because uh, it's a film about this, it, like I say, it's a story about the stories people tell about each other, how you learn about a place and how you learn about a people by the stories people tell about them. And I think it could have made an amazing film and I genuinely think someone should have a crack and do this uh, uh, another time. Have I, have I sold you? Have I sold you on this uh, on this pitch, mate? Yeah, I think you have. David Harper <laughs> would be great. Do you know what I mean? That's just like kind of that schlubby character who kind of becomes, you know, becomes something else. He could definitely do it. That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. The Frighteners is available on the usual digital platforms and almost as cheap to buy as to rent. It's fairly pricey on physical media, though. The White Jazz Project is documented once again in the book The Greatest Movies You'll Never See by Simon Brond. You can read a draft of the script on the website Bulletproof Screenwriting. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation, where we discuss film casting decisions and what-if moments. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.